And we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word as well. Thank you, Father, for your body. Thank you for the diversity of it in every way that it can be diverse. And what you are able to do with a human life. And we are grateful for the Christian life. Like David, we are grateful to be able to live it. We have no regrets in anything in life that we have done with you and under your instruction, how we've spent our life, the decades that have been vested in you and the things of, of you, Lord, and all of it so well spent. We pray that as we turn to your word this evening that you would open it up to us, you would teach us about yourself, and Lord, that you would speak into our hearts and into our personal relationship with you this evening. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit through your living word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Zechariah chapter 12. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to Zechariah chapter 12 and look to finish it this evening. We remember from last time that chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah, they constitute a, a, the final two prophecies of the book of Zechariah. The first prophecy, uh, made up of chapters 9 through 11, address prophetically the coming of the Messiah in His first coming, Jesus coming in His first coming. The chapters that we look at tonight, 12 through 14, emphasize prophetically the ministry of of the Messiah at His second coming. And so these are future events, but we will recognize them as being spoken about uh, throughout the Scriptures, speaking about Jesus' return and, uh, and uh, the battle of Armageddon and all of these uh, events that constitute that. In chapter 12 now, in verses 1 through 9, we have a description of Judah and Jerusalem uh, in the tribulation period, that seven-year period of God's judgment upon the world uh, prior to Jesus' second coming. And, uh, and uh, Zechariah writes, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. I don't know the last time that you introduced yourself in any business setting or addressed your wife or your husband uh, with this kind of terminology. I'm guessing that you haven't. Because only God can speak to an audience or speak to another person in this way. What He is communicating when He describes Himself in this way is that He is all-powerful and that His plans are absolutely irresistible. And so that's what he's communicating. Nothing can stop these things from happening. And, uh, and so then he moves into a description in verses 2 and 3 of an attack that is made against Jer Jerusalem, a future siege of Jerusalem by the nations of the world in an attempt to be rid of uh, Israel and rid of Jerusalem altogether. Behold, I will make Jerusalem, God says, a cup of drunkenness to the surrounding people when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely uh, be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. And so all of the nations are ultimately, during the tribulation period, the entire world will turn against Israel, turn against uh, the Jews. They will be alone in the world except for uh, God, and that's a, <laughs> a powerful except. And, uh, but they will uh, come, surround her, and, uh, and they will begin to try and destroy her, of course, under the Antichrist during that period. But these nations, as they gather now to try and destroy the Jewish people and Jerusalem and uh, Judah, uh, they're going to get far more than they bargained for as God rises up in order to resist them. He describes Jerusalem 
as being a very heavy stone for all peoples there in verse 3. It's a very heavy stone, uh, God says, that when people endeavor to remove it, uh, endeavor to remove the Jews from their land, endeavor to uh, trouble them in the way that these nations are going to try and trouble them during the tribulation period, that anybody that endeavors to heave it away will be cut in pieces no matter what their numbers. He describes Jerusalem as a cup of drunkenness, and uh, that is, uh, they're going to be an instrument of God to draw the Gentile world into uh, judgment. And so a the cup so often in the Old Testament spoke of God's wrath. It was symbolic of God's wrath. And, and, uh, and so uh, God is going to rise up in His wrath against these nations that try to destroy uh, the Jews and destroy Israel. And it will leave their uh, armies defeated, will leave them reeling uh, and defenseless like a, a drunk man. When he describes... Again, Jerusalem is a very, very heavy stone. The idea is that it's a burdensome stone. It is an immovable stone. Any attempt to remove that rock is going to result in uh, injury and ruin. I don't know if you've ever, um, as a kid or whenever it might happen in your life, where you saw kind of a, a rock sticking up out of the ground and you thought it was a loose kind of rock, and you wound up and you kicked it with your tennis-shoed foot or sandaled foot, and it didn't move. Uh, it was uh, way down in, in the ground, and by kicking that stone, uh, all, all you've done is then to hurt yourself. Or if you've ever been angry, uh, once in a while you'll read about a um, a professional athlete making $20 million a year, and he gets angry at home, and he hits a wall and uh, break something in his hand and now he can't pitch for the team that he's uh, supposed to be pitching for. Or uh, you go and you kick something in the garage and it's uh, an immovable object. All we ever do is, is we hurt ourselves when, when we endeavor to, to do that. Jerusalem has a population of one million people today. The population of the entire country is about 11 million. They sit uniquely as a people in the context of seven billion people in the world. They are the tiniest fraction of people within, uh, within the world. And that little sliver of land is, is the same uh, size as our state uh, of New Jersey. And yet, Jerusalem and Israel are constantly in the news always in the news, something about uh, Israel that is, is uh, always being reported. Anything that happens in, in Israel is going to be uh, is reported. And so Jerusalem is like the, that kind of city. It has a, uh, a disproportional uh, influence in the world to this day. And, and uh, why isn't the focus of the whole world on Tokyo? Uh, 37 million people in Tokyo. Uh, why not Mexico City, 21 million? Why not Cairo, 21 million? Why not Phoenix, Arizona, 1.7 million? Or Cleveland, Ohio, 1.7 million? Why just Jerusalem, a population of 1 million, and it, the focus of the world is always uh, on it? I remember when uh, we were on a, a trip to Israel uh, a number of years ago, and my wife and I, we got into a taxi cab, and uh, somebody was talking, uh, you know, there was a hubbub going on in, in uh, Israel at that time and some kind of riots and fighting that's always going on uh, there, people coming against them. And, uh, and, it, and it was asked of the cab driver, uh, you, you know, are things safe for us to be out and about in, on, on everything in light of what's going on? And, and he said, in essence, he said, on any given night... In any number of cities in the United States, he was from the United States, had relocated to, to Jerusalem. He said, in any given night, in any number of cities in the United States of America, ten people can be killed in those cities, and there's not a line written about them. He said, somebody throws a rock in Jerusalem, and it's headlines. 
And, and, and he made the point of the influence that God has given and the focal point that he has made of Israel and Jerusalem in the world to this uh, day. And the reason it's the focal point is it is where Jesus is going to return at his second coming right outside of the city of Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives and where he is going to establish a capital, spiritual center of the worship of God for not only the Jews but the whole world uh, during uh, the, the kingdom age, the thousand year reign of Christ. And then in verses 4 through 9, we have uh, Jerusalem uh, defended by the Lord, delivered by the Lord, a description of, of the battle of Armageddon. And so in that day, says the Lord, as these nations are now coming against uh, the Jews, I will strike every horse with confusion. Uh, I'm, I'm not comfortable on a horse uh, generally. Uh, but when they're confused, I'm really not interested in being on the back of one, and especially if we're heading into battle. I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and strike every uh, horse of the peoples uh, with blindness. So every horse in, in this invasion, every horse is going to be in a panic and confusion. Every rider's um, going to go mad, and, and the horses are going to be uh, blinded. Now, when we read this kind of imagery in terms of battle described in ancient language, there's a lot of people who look and say, and I'm one of them, uh, look and say, well, uh, the Old Testament writers, they can't know about ICBM missiles. They can't know uh, about the kind of weaponry that we've developed today. Uh, they're describing elite military weaponry, what would be overwhelming weaponry in the ancient world in a battle as kind of a type of um, the, the kind of battle that will happen at uh, Armageddon. And so I, I, I take great freedom in my own understanding of the Bible to be able to look at these things as they're in the Old Testament and say these could be very well a, de a description by the prophet trying to describe as best as he can in, in ancient technology what kind of technology will take the battlefield at the end of the age. There are others that look at it and say, well, you know, the case can be laid just as well that we're talking about literal horses uh, at the end, end of the age, that armies will be fielded by means of horses and livestock. And you've got to give some credit to that view because when you read the book of Revelation, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, what is going to happen to the face of the earth, you think we got problems with supply lines now. Uh, you, you can imagine what is going to be the difficulty of, of uh, arming and, and moving people around uh, in the middle of, uh, of the mess of what is going to be the tribulation, the great tribulation period during that time. And so it'll be a reversal back into kind of uh, warfare in the old days. I still hold to the fact that it's going to be uh, modern uh, weaponry, but um, uh, that, that's a, a way to look at it. So here they come with all of their armies and, and all of the nations of the earth are gathered against it there at the end of verse 3. That is a formidable thing. I mean, here we are, we're looking as a country trying to, um, we have a military for all of our wealth uh, and deficit spending. Uh, for all of that, we have an army and a military and a navy that can uh, adequately function on a single front. We are not ready for a two-front war currently in our, our readiness and the danger of the, the world that we live in. How in the world do you prepare yourself to be protected being the single nation in the world and then the entire world is against you? Well, the only way you're going to survive that uh, is when the Lord declares here and He talks about His eyes. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and then He comes in and He, uh, will, he will defend her in the midst of all of this. And so God's intervention 
in verse 5, the governors of Judah shall say in their hearts, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength. And uh, in the Lord of hosts, says, uh, uh, in the Lord of hosts, their God, they will recognize that the victory that they receive in the battle of Armageddon, that it is God has given them the triumph over their enemies. And in that day, verse 6, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile, like something that would set a woodpile on fire, not a good thing. Uh, and like a fiery torch in the sheaves, somebody throwing a torch into a, a, a ripe and, and ready to be harvested, uh, an already harvested uh, wheat crop that's going to go up in flames, and they shall devour all of the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on uh, the left. So Judah's going to be preserved. In, in the midst of this uh, battle, uh, her enemies are going to be quickly and decisively uh, destroyed, just like a wood pile or a pile of grain that is dried out uh, wood if, if put to flames. And, and then, but J- Jerusalem at the end of verse 6 shall be inhabited against, uh, again in her own place, uh, and the place being uh, Jerusalem. And so the reason that God is delivering uh, them, they're going to be preserved, they're going to stay in Jerusalem, nobody is going to move them uh, from that place and the place that they will have in, in the kingdom age. And then he declares in verse 7, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not be greater than that of Judah. So he's going to protect not only Jerusalem, he's going to protect the Jewish people in Judah. So the people in Jerusalem uh, aren't the only recipients of God's deliverance and then thinking they're hot shots uh, in, in some kind of a way over the, uh, the, the, uh, the rest of the inhabitants uh, of the land. He said, in that day, uh, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. David, a mighty, mighty warrior, great, great uh, warrior. It was the reason he couldn't build the temple uh, in, in the ancient world, his history. And he said, even the nerdy of us, uh, of uh, the Jews, will be a fight like him in that, in that day. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against uh, Jerusalem. And so God will give uh, great strength to those that fight in this battle and, uh, and are engaged in all of this. The leaders of the city are going to give God, uh, be given God, supernatural God-given strength in, in all that is happening. And all the nations that come against Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. So uh, note to self, if I'm leading a country, uh, do not be involved in this invasion. But it won't, won't do uh, any, uh, any good at all. Then the return of the Messiah, uh, speaking of Jesus' second coming, uh, becomes the focus here now in verse 10. And God declares that I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem at Jesus' second coming the spirit of grace and supplication. And then the Jewish people at Jesus' second coming, then they will look on me whom they pierced, confronting them with their part in the crucifixion of Jesus, whom they pierced. And yes, they will mourn for Him when they see Him at His second coming, and, and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for His only Son, grieve for Him as one grieves for His firstborn. The greatest grief, and it's a way of encapsulating uh, the greatest grief a person can feel in life in the ancient world was the loss of the firstborn. They're, they will be devastated when they, at this moment in time, they come to realize that Jesus is and always has been their Messiah. And in that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem 
like the morning at Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo, and the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. When, when they see Jesus return at His second coming and they realize that He is and again always has been uh, their uh, Messiah uh, and there's going to be this sense of I've just got to get alone and process this. This is how stunned the Jewish people are going to be in in that moment. And it's not going to be a thing of where, okay, just uh, carnally or with the rational mind, uh, here they are in the place that they're in. Jesus Himself shows up at His second coming, defeats Israel's enemies in the battle uh, of Armageddon. They realize that He's uh, the Messiah. And then how you might process that in the same way of how any of us might process the deepest regret for anything we've ever done in life. But, But God lets us know here that when that happens, there in the beginning of verse 10, He's going to pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They are going to have a supernatural Holy Spirit revelation all the way down to their core of the fact that Jesus was and is their Messiah a realization of what they did to Him and what they've done to Him for 2,000 years. But it won't be just that uh, revelation. He will also bring a spirit of grace, uh, we're told here. There will be a deep conviction. There will be a deep sorrow at this unveiling that will occur. But God will also add uh, grace to it in order to infuse hope here uh, in, in the situation. So he'll bring them to that conviction, the godly sorrow, and uh, bring them also to repentance, but giving them hope for the fact that it's not too late for them to trust uh, in him and their recognition of him as the Messiah uh, being a great thing. So they'll recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They will mourn. They will mourn uh, because of uh, their Uh, the Jews' crucifixion of Jesus. Imagine what it will be like then when that light dawns on them as a people. We killed our Messiah. And what does that look like? Not from the vantage point of earth, but what does that look like from the vantage point of heaven? We took the one that we've waited all of our generations of people for. And when He came into human history in that generation, we killed the Messiah. That's going to hit, you're going to be hit like spiritually like a white freight liner. That's going to slam into them individually so hard. And not only did we kill Him, but we crucified Him. We played that part in, in, his, uh, in his death. And so it's going to leave them stunned as a people. It's going to leave them stunned as a nation. And, and individually, they'll just want to get away in order to grieve and to process it uh, alone. And you would think about all how, where a person's mind might go in that moment. And you stop and you think about 2,000 years or, or however many years it will be at that time of this rejection of Him and how different life might have been for the Jewish people. Life might have been for our family. Life might have been for the world. If we, we who had the responsibility of all of the nations of the world to recognize Him as the Messiah and then point the world to Him, 
if we had only recognized Him when He first came. It is going to be a massive amount to process at that moment in time at, at, at Jesus' uh, second uh, coming. Their heads are going to be spinning. And this is going to be the condition of, of the Jews as they head into the kingdom age, as they trust in Jesus, having survived the great tribulation, trust Him, and then now head into the kingdom age, a thousand-year reign of Christ. Imagine the gratitude. Imagine the, the sense of need of wanting to get caught up on 2,000 years of lost time in worshiping this one that was under our noses for all of these years, and we said no to it, no matter who God sent to us to open our eyes up to Him, and even in sending Him uh, Himself. And so there'll be this, this turning to Him, this great realization that will go on. It is um, one of uh, the greatest purposes of the tribulation period, if not the greatest purpose of the tribulation period, is in order for the Jews to finally recognize Jesus as uh, their Messiah. That's why this, the tribulation period is referred to in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. It is God's dealing supremely with the Jews and opening their eyes up and their hearts up uh, to uh, to Christ. And then he describes the cleansing uh, of the nation that will occur at Jesus' second coming as he establishes his thousand year reign in chapter 13. And in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. And so, the first thing that he's going to do is provide here with a, a provision of, the, he's going to cleanse the nation, provision of, for cleansing uh, of sin. A fountain's going to be open up for sin and for uncleanness. Jesus is that fountain. Uh, their eyes will be opened up to him as the fountain that washes uh, away uh, our, our sins by, by his blood. And then in verse 2, it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. He will remove all idolatry. I will also cause the prophets, speaking of false prophets, and the unclean spirits to depart from uh, the land. And so there will be the removal of all false prophets, the removal of, uh, of, uh, of all uh, uh, anything demonic, all idolatry, unclean spirits, all of it uh, removed. And so the unrepentant false prophets uh, will be silenced, uh, not by the larger Jewish population, uh, d uh, but they will be silenced uh, by their own parents in verse 3. And it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and his mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And so uh, all of this would be consistent with the law of Moses. But the prophet who uh, presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, the Lord said, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And there will be such a zeal for God, such a zeal for the Messiah, such a zeal uh, for holiness, obedience to God, that uh, a zeal for God is going to excel even the zeal for uh, family ties, and especially those who uh, want to continue the sins that kept the Jewish people, uh, their eyes hidden from recognizing Jesus as the Messiah for so many years. We think about the Jewish rabbis today and uh, their resistance in every way to twist the Scriptures, to uh, keep the nation of, of Israel from coming to faith in Christ, all of the things that they have set up in order to, to do that very thing. And we can look at them and shrug our shoulders and it says, well, they're Jewish rabbis. What else do you expect uh, you know, of them? It's a long history of rejection. This is what they do. But that's not how it's viewed from heaven. Imagine being a rabbi in Israel 
And you have spent your life turning the Jewish people away from faith in Christ. And and you, you recognize your culpability in all of, of that. It's, it is the, it's, the, you, it's not only being a false prophet, but it's being the worst false prophet you can be because the consequences are eternal. And, and so anybody who tries to rise up among the Jewish people during the kingdom age and then turn people's uh, Jewish eyes away from Jesus as the Messiah, uh, God won't even have to take that into His, own, into his hands. His own family uh, will, will take care uh, of, of all of that. And, and, uh, and then it shall be, verse 4, in, uh, in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They shall not wear a, a robe of coarse hair to deceive. So, when Jesus comes at His second coming, not only is every kind of imaginable common person uh, you know, more elite people in, in terms of socioeconomic levels and all. They're, the Jewish eyes are going to be uh, opened up to Him as the Messiah, and they're going to put their faith in Him. And among that group will be former prophets who spent their whole lives tr- turning the Jewish focus away from Jesus as the Messiah onto another person, the Antichrist, for seven years during the tribulation uh, period, they will be guilty uh, of that, but their eyes will be opened up too to their folly and to the fact that Jesus is Messiah, and they will give up at that point um, not only uh, being a prophet or pretending to speak for God, but against God in doing so, uh, they will uh, lay low then during the kingdom age and, uh, and just kind of get a regular job as a farmer in verse 5 and try to forget and hope everybody else forgets uh, the part that they played in blinding their people to Jesus as the Messiah. And so the false prophet, former false prophet, he will say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer, I've forgotten about uh, that, what I used to be, who could live with it, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, uh, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now a lot of times verse 6 is taken to be a reference to Messiah, a reference to Jesus. It isn't. Um, and it, it, it's not right really to apply it to him. It's being applied to repentant false prophets in the kingdom of age who've put their faith in, in Christ. And so uh, they, the wounds, it is uh, uh, surmised that the wounds that they bear are self-afflicted wounds that they've placed upon their body in the worship of idolatry, the worship of other things, the denial of self and a, and a kind of a denial of self expression of, of religion and all. And when people say, well, what about those, uh, what about those uh, wounds? They'll explain them away as, yeah, I used to fight with my younger brother, older brother a lot when we were kids, and I got it kind of like that. And uh, uh, they'll be one is so separated from uh, what they, they once were in the light of seeing and realizing the part they played into the nation's blindness concerning, uh, concerning Christ. And then in verse 7, we have a prophecy concerning the true prophet, concerning Jesus as the Messiah. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And this takes Jesus to his first coming, to his crucifixion. Uh, against the man, here is God speaking, against the man who is my companion. And, and that, uh, that word companion there, it means my fellow, my relation, my kindred. A strong reference here to the Father calling, uh, calling Jesus uh, divine. Against the man who is my companion, speaking about Jesus' crucifixion, says the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I, then I will turn away my hand against the little ones. And so uh, th- uh, there is the, the Jesus uh, quotes this in uh, 
in, uh, in his ministry. He ascribes Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 to himself uh, and in his first coming. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so, uh, this is clearly a reference to Jesus uh, in His uh, second coming. Messiah is going to be slain, and as a result of Him being slain, Israel is going to be scattered. And so they were in 70 A.D., when the Romans came in and conquered the land and then also destroyed Jerusalem uh, and the temple. The consequences that Israel's uh, going to bear uh, during the Great Tribulation for having uh, uh, slain or rejected their Messiah is given to us in verses 8 and 9. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Uh, Two-thirds of the Jewish people will die, it it appears to be, at the hands of a great persecution, a demonic persecution that is meted out against them after the abomination that causes desolation at the halfway point of the tribulation. The Antichrist turns his focus almost entirely upon the destruction and the wiping out uh, of the Jews. Because it isn't just about an Antichrist and about Jewish people in name only. It is the fact that the Antichrist will be possessed by the devil himself and the devil understands all all of the promises uh, and future promises that God has given concerning the Jewish people in history, and He wants to bring those to an end by utterly destroying the Jewish people. And uh, it'll be a terrible persecution. It's heartbreaking, needless, but it will occur uh, needless in the sense that um, if he had been recognized in his first coming, it never would have been a part of their history. Two-thirds uh, in, uh, in the city, in, in the land, will be cut off and die. But one-third will be left in it. And God says, I will bring one-third through the fire, the fire of the tribulation period, uh, I, and will f- refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is um, tested. And so... Uh, this uh, protection he's, is he protects this uh, one-third that flees from the land and uh, flees the, the Antichrist. He will supernaturally uh, protect them to be restored to God at, at um, Jesus' second coming. They will survive uh, the tribulation uh, period. And then uh, uh, he goes on to speak, and they will, uh, shall call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one shall say, the Lord is my God. They will turn to Christ, recognize Him as the Messiah, and make Him their Savior at, at that uh, particular uh, point. And then in chapter 14, we have a final attack that is going to occur, described, uh, going to occur uh, upon uh, Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation, immediately before Jesus' second coming and the Battle of Armageddon. And he says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. This refers to a uh, word of the, the day of the Lord, a final siege of Jerusalem by the nations during the Great Tribulation, immediately before Jesus' Uh, second coming. Uh, the nations of the world will be uh, gathered together to, uh, to come against her. This is the wrong kind of United Nations uh, that will be happening. The day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken and house, the house is rifled and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people uh, shall not be cut off from the city. And so uh, Israel is going to be sacked. Half of its people are going to be taken captive. And then Jesus is going to enter into that, uh, that uh, battle, that conflict, and everything then turns on a dime. We learn the sequence of this final kind of series of events that are happening on the earth that lead up to the battle of Armageddon and Jesus' second coming. Uh, in in uh, uh, 
taking care of the battle of Armageddon on his way to the Mount of Olives at his, his second coming. And we learn the sequence of the events of this future battle that's described here uh, from Daniel chapter 11, here in Zechariah, Revelation chapter 16, and Revelation chapter 19, among other places. It, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist, his rule, his authority, and he'll be greatly weakened by uh, the, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, but he will be attacked, Daniel tells us, uh, from the south by the king of the south. And so apparently there's a confederation of African nations that have had it up to this point, and they're going to attack the Antichrist uh, from the south. They're going to rebel against his uh, authority. Remember, Will had been uh, raptured seven years earlier from all of these events. What the Antichrist will do is he'll respond against this rebellion and uh, he will crush the attack. He will make his way from the area of Europe or up in that area where is his center of power. He will make his way down into Africa by going through the land uh, of, of Israel, the glorious land, and then he will invade Africa from that path and he'll conquer Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia. And then his invasion of the African continent at that point, as he's putting down this rebellion, it's cut short when he hears news from the north and from the east coming against his rear. And so in great fury, he's going to leave off his invasion of Africa. He'll turn back in order now to destroy and annihilate these armies that are coming against his rear from the north and from the east. And so these three great armies will, um, the beast's army, the Antichrist's army, the army from the north, perhaps Russia, and, and then from the east, they're going to gather, they're going to gather under demonic influence, they're going to meet to fight one another in the valley of Megiddo. But before they can begin to fight one another, the Lord is going to return at His second coming. These armies will then turn from their hatred of one another, and now united in an even greater hatred of God, they will attempt to fight the Creator of the heavens and the earth upon, upon His return. And then they are, what ensues is the battle of Armageddon, they're utterly, effortlessly destroyed. And to give you an idea about the size of these armies, Revelation chapter 14 verse 20 tells us that the bloodshed, the bodies that are going to be heaped up related to all of this will be up to a horse's bridle throughout the length of the valley. And when you think about the fact that the valley of Megiddo is 184 miles, that's a lot of bodies. And that's the destruction that occurs that's the battle uh, of, of Armageddon. And uh, Jesus will then move from there. He will touch down on the Mount of Olives at His second coming and then begin His thousand-year uh, reign. And then in, in verse 3, the Lord, as, we, as I've mentioned here, will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day uh, of battle. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Uh, that's where He's going to land at His second coming. Uh, pretty precious real estate. Remember, He ascended into heaven with the promise to come back from the Mount of Olives. He is going to return at the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem uh, on the east, the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, and, and they'll divide and, uh, 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 east to west, and the Mount of Olives will shift north and south in order to accommodate that. It's going to be really something uh, to see. I mean, that, that, his touching, that touch of his foot to that Mount of Olives is going to produce that. It's going to make a very large valley, and half of the mountain shall move to the north and half uh, toward uh, the south. And so as we were mentioning this morning about this tribulation temple being destroyed, uh, this will readily, uh, could readily do that if that's the way that God wants to do it. And then God declares, and you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the uh, mountain valley shall reach uh, Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake uh, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Jesus returns at His second coming in, a, in an instant. He 
uh, wipes out Israel's enemies in the, in the form of the, the Battle of Armageddon. Then he makes his way immediately to the Mount of Olives. It's a very, very short distance, if distance is even a problem for him. And, uh, and then as this uh, great kind of natural wonder occurs related to touching the Mount of Olives, creating that valley, then all of the Jews that have been holed up for their own kind of safety in the city of Jerusalem will then be able to flee kind of from uh, their fear and their captivity then through that, that mountain valley and, uh, and escape. And uh, the Lord my God will come and all the saints, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. And so he is, uh, when, when he comes back at his second coming, as Christians we will come back with him uh, from heaven, having been there uh, during the period of the, the seven days, comparable to the seven years of the tribulation period of the marriage supper of, of the Lamb. We will return with him uh, at that. We're going to see all of, uh, all of that happen and it shall come to pass uh, in that day that there will be no light. Uh, the lights will diminish. It, will be, it shall be one day which is known uh, to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will uh, be light. And so here in all of these uh, events that are going on, Jesus' second coming, uh, there's going to be a... A, a strong kind of supernatural uh, events that are going to be occurring uh, and, and uh, changes in nature for a short period of time on the actual day of, of Jesus' second coming. During the day, light is going to diminish. At, at evening, there's going to be an unusual light. Now, um, the battle of Armageddon is... Um, is in my mind, it is the unbattle of Armageddon. Uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is not like Jesus uh, has to take a, a lot of time to take care of, uh, of business there. I think he just speaks something out of his mouth, as clearly he does in the Revelation, reveals that, and then it's just simply uh, over. Uh, it is a decisive and an immediate um, victory. And then into the kingdom age, uh, as, as Jesus' second coming has occurred, into the kingdom age, the establishment of the temple there in Jerusalem, in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, that is the Dead Sea, half of them toward the western sea, in both summer and winter it shall occur. So Ezekiel chapter 37 brings forth this in, in great detail. There will be a great river, a great water source that will come up uh, from the temple, rebuilt the, the tabernacle, the um, tribulation temple that will be built during the tribulation. A great source of water will flow from uh, Jerusalem and uh, part of it will go to the Dead Sea making it alive. And then the other half of it will flow uh, into the Dead Sea. Water will not be an issue during the, the thousand-year uh, reign of, of Christ. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day it shall uh, be the Lord is one and His name one. And so the Lord is going to rule over the entire uh, earth, uh, not just the Jews, but uh, over Jew and Gentile. And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up be, uh, above uh, 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 a flat elevation or zero elevation. It will be uh, high and raised, and it will be inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. And people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, 
but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So something that happens related to Jesus' second coming, or again, it may be the result of all the cataclysmic judgments that are going to occur during the tribulation uh, period. If you, for instance, if you went to Jerusalem today and you said, okay, uh, the Bible says there's going to be a temple that is going to be here during the kingdom age, and how in the water, how in the world is water going to make its way through all of these hills, these mountains, these barriers, all of these things to get to the Dead Sea? We don't see how that is going to happen. But God says, as all these things play out, Everything will be turned into a plain. Jerusalem will be uh, the sole kind of elevated uh, place in, in uh, the topography of things there at that time. And so the water will readily flow toward the Mediterranean and then also toward uh, the Dead Sea. And this shall be the plague. Now, Zechariah returns now to uh, the battle of, uh, of Armageddon. He revisits it and he said, This shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against uh, Jerusalem and uh, that came against Jerusalem, uh, the three great armies that constituted, uh, that they were going to fight with each other, then they decide now they're going to fight against God. Um, here is the description of what will happen to them. Their flesh shall dissolve while they, while they stand on their feet. Okay. You ever thought of ways you don't want to go? I mean, that would be one of them. Who's the, um, what's the movie with the, the adventure? Yes, okay. It's kind of like that, where, but not like that. The, the guy just kind of melts away before your eyes. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. So here is what happens to uh, those armies that come against Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. Again, it's not going to be some great, big, straining on God's part battle. Some people look at this and they say, well, it seems to describe something uh, nuclear. And, uh, and so maybe those kind of weapons will be involved in here, something where people just are melted away by the heat and the radiation. It's altogether possible. It is also very, very possible that since by Jesus Christ all things consist, every atom is held together, that he could simply look at those armies and everything associated with them and then just cease to hold together uh, the atoms within their body and they just simply dissolve uh, as a result of it. However it happens, we don't know, uh, but it's, uh, it, you can see why they have no chance of, of winning at all, as if anyone has a chance of winning a fight against God. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them, Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor. There's going to be the fear in the ranks of these three armies and uh, raise his hand against his uh, neighbor's hand. They'll begin to fight against each other among the armies. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in a great abundance. And so, obviously, a lot of wealth is going to be there associated with the size of these kind of armies and uh, all of that wealth will then pour uh, into Jerusalem as a result. And such also shall be the plague uh, on the horse and on the mule, on the camel and the donkey, on all the cattle that will be in the camps of these three, uh, 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 the cattle will be in these three camps of these three armies, so, so shall this plague uh, be. They will also experience what's described there in, uh, in verse 12. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all of the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up year to year to worship the King, uh, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So you have these three armies coming out of three different parts of the world uh, in order to fight with each other, then to fight with God. God wipes out the armies, but He does not wipe out the citizens of the nations that sent 
sent those uh, armies. Because sometimes there can be a great difference between uh, what is the will of the citizenry and the will of political leaders and where they send their armies off uh, to fight. And so he will not uh, judge them. Uh, they will uh, come to faith in him and, uh, and they will uh, uh, be a part of uh, of the kingdom age and uh, the great feast that is going to be kept in the, that's mentioned here during the kingdom age is the feast of tabernacles a celebration of God's faithfulness to the Jewish people and his provision for them during the 40 years in which they wandered in the wilderness and it speaks to the fact that this thousand years there's not going to be any want every single need of every single human being is going to be abundantly met. No hunger, no thirst, uh, none of those things. And it shall be that whatever of the families of the earth uh, do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, related to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Lord of hosts, uh, 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 on them there will be no rain. So if somebody looks and says, no, I'm not going to go there, or a nation or leaders of a nation says, we're not, gonna, we're not going to do this, re revolt against what Jesus is doing there, uh, God says, um, I'll shut off the spigot. I'll shut off the rain uh, 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 for you and the blessings that come with rain. And, uh, and so if you, don't, if you don't like the God who gives the rain, then you don't like the rain. You're not going to have it. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they uh, shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not come up uh, to keep uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so you say, well, boy, I mean, these Egyptians are, I mean, what are they thinking that they have to be, you know, pointed out in this kind of a way? And uh, it, it isn't necessarily saying that they're going to do that in that time. Remember, the Nile River is a primary water source for Egypt, and it is, that river is less dependent upon rain than most rivers. And so God is saying, hey, even if you got all the water you want, un regardless of the rain that falls, uh, it'll still be trouble for you uh, if, if you don't uh, fall in line with what it is that's happening during the kingdom age. And in that day, uh, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. Uh, the pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In other words, during the kingdom age, especially associated with Judah and Jerusalem, there will be no division between uh, the sacred and the secular. Everything will become sacred. Uh, even the ordinary bowls that you use for your cereal in the morning or a pot that you make uh, to uh, make some stew or whatever, there will be such a love and a reverence for God, the recognition that He has provided uh, what it is that I'm uh, eating here. This is His provision, His goodness in my life. Everything, there'll be that kind of a, a holiness, a holy attitude toward life and toward God during uh, the kingdom uh, age. And in that day, there shall be uh, no Canaanite, no longer be a Canaanite in the house uh, of the Lord of hosts. And so, in the Old Testament, a Canaanite symbolized uh, what was uh, ungodly or ceremonially unclean, and there's not going to be any ungodly, unclean, hypocritical worship offered to the Lord uh, during the kingdom age. And so uh, we finish the book of Zechariah uh, here tonight, and we'll look to move into Malachi um, next week. And so this reminder to us in Zechariah of the fact that our service to the Lord is meaningful. It is meaningful to God. However the world might esteem it, however we might esteem it, everything that we do in the service to the Lord is a part of this gigantic, grand, wonderful plan that is unfolding and is going to be brought to completion uh, by uh, God. And so here is this 
amazing picture from the Old Testament. You can think you're reading the New Testament book of Revelation that God uh, wins and it's going to be wonderful that He does. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the book of Zechariah and the two big divisions of it. We thank You for uh, what You speak to us about our Christian service. We can be so prone to listen to other voices or even worse, the voices in our own head in judging how valuable what we're doing is, what kind of a difference it's making in the world, and to see that however we might view it or others might view it, that it has a part in this incredible plan that is unfolding for human history that ends ultimately in a, a new heaven and in a, a new earth. We thank You for the revelation of what is going to happen, Lord, with the Jewish people, what's going to happen with the world in the end times, and to be able to see the world being prepared for that even at this time. Thank You that we will go to bed tonight, we will lay our heads on the pillow without any concern at all that You might not win in human history or any lack of clarity or confidence in how wonderfully it does end. And so tonight we close the book of Zechariah by saying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, even so come quickly. And we pray these things in Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you stand here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, we'd love to pray with you to become a Christian this evening. We'll be up in front immediately after the service. If you need prayer for anything this evening, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Lucy, would you close us up?